Well, in the time that I've spent as a pastor, uh, I've experienced some major changes. Even in the last decade, we've seen shifts in music. We've even seen the way that the Bible is preached change, that things that were once trendy are no longer trendy and vice versa. We've seen people in their 20s and 30s seek to reclaim the traditions of the church going back almost 2,000 years to see what the early Christians thought about Scripture and worship. There's been a lot of change. But something that hasn't changed, at least from what I've seen and from my perspective, is that many churches have called pastors who are simply not qualified for the job. Now, I know that sounds like I'm being a judgmental jerk. I get it. For me to stand behind a pulpit and say that there are churches that have men in leadership who are not qualified to do this sounds judgmental. Except when you look at the text of Scripture and it's staring at us in the face that this is the standard. The standard for someone who is in ministry leadership, whether it's a pastor or an elder, which means the same thing, the standard is not in what we want, but rather in what God says in his word. God has given us the standard. It's the Bible. And in the Bible, God clearly lays out for us how he wants us to worship and what he expects of leaders in the church. And what's happened, specifically in the American church over the years, is that ministry success has moved from, is the preacher preaching the word, to, is he drawing a crowd? Is he faithful in his duties, to, can he compel people? Is he a gifted communicator? Is he a dynamic leader? See, when we examine what the Bible says about church leadership, it's clear that many have asked the questions that simply aren't found in the text. Many of the standards for church leaders are standards that we've come up with, but they are found nowhere in the Bible. And this is why a book like 1 Timothy is so important. Because Paul gives us the standard, speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us a standard for how we are supposed to measure our leaders, our pastors and elders, our teachers. And it is not my standard, and it is not your standard. It is God's standard. And in every discussion about the church, which, by the way, doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. In every discussion about God's church, we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? Because the truth is, if I don't come up here and speak what the Bible says, ignore every word that I say. I've got nothing to offer you except for this is what God says. But likewise, we all, all must be willing and ready to change if the Bible commands it. See, this morning we're looking at what a, a pastor, shepherd, elder, bishop, overseer, all means the same thing. What at, we're looking at what that job, that role, that responsibility is. 
These terms can be used interchangeably. They, they mean the same thing. We, we have elders here at FBA. And you may do what I do sometimes when, when I'm speaking to someone. I say we have elders, which means all of us. Uh, but then we have pastors, which means the staff guys. But the truth is that, that every elder is a pastor and every pastor is an elder. They mean the exact same thing. And so this morning, I will use all of these terms. Interchangeably, I'll use them. So, so when you hear a word, just know that I mean all the other ones as well. So first, what does an overseer do? A few years ago, a kid in a church that I was serving in came up to me and said, what is your job? Where do you work? And I said, well, right here. I'm, I'm a pastor here. I work at the church. No, and the kid said, wait, no, no, no. What do you do for a job? And, and I, I said, I work at the church. And the kid just was completely flustered, had no idea what I was talking about, thinking that I just showed up on Sunday mornings, not realizing that there's many other things that, that are done outside of the Sunday morning gathering. And he couldn't quite understand what I meant. And so overseers, I tried to explain to him, overseers, pastors, shepherds, elders, teaching is a major component, I dare say the most important component, but it's not the only component. He didn't understand this. And I've had conversations with adults over the years where, what do you do for work? What do you do? You just sit and read all day? Do you just come in on Sunday mornings at 10 and just give us a sermon and go home? Overseers do more than just preach and teach. But in 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says preaching and teaching is the most important thing that we do. Paul says preach the word. The preaching of the word is what drives the church. If the preaching is unfaithful, you can expect to have an unfaithful church. On the other hand, if the preaching is faithful, theological, doctrinal, gospel-centered, you can expect that the health will come. So there's a lot an overseer does, but his primary responsibility is to preach the word. And this doesn't mean sermons that captivate you. Instead, the overseer is to provide a steady diet of teaching that stretches you, that challenges you, that makes you feel uncomfortable, that makes you grow. And in doing that, the overseer makes you uncomfortable so that you're forced to examine your life, your thinking, your actions in light of what God says. And so you say, well, what do you do then? Well, my job, primarily as a pastor, is to pour over God's word. To examine my own life day in and day out to see how short that I've fallen. To see that I don't meet the standard that God gives. Day after day after day to pour over this so that when I come before you, I, I can come with an empty tank in order that I can be refilled just like you. Not because of me, but because of the word. My job is to pour over the text. And see, we as teachers, preachers, worship leaders, vocalists, 
We have a, a bad tendency, a bad habit to want to hit home runs every single time. We want to wow people. We want people to share our, our, our gifts and, and to go tell people how, how great we did that day. We want to do that, but here's, you can't win by hitting home runs every time. Because home runs don't always come. It's a steady diet. A steady, regular diet of biblical, theological preaching. As you can tell, I like to eat and some of my favorite food is, well, actually all of my favorite food is really bad for you. If only vegetables tasted a little bit better, I would eat more of them. But I love pie. I love cake. I love cookies and anything with lots of sugar in it. And you can sustain yourself for a little bit eating that. You're not going to keel over by eating some cake and pie and going a few days with that. But the reality is, long term, it's killing you. Eating nothing but carbs and sugar is not good for us. And likewise, the same thing comes in our teaching and preaching. Getting fluff, getting sugar, getting marshmallow preaching, it's not going to cause you to grow. It may make us feel good. It may make us uplifted. It may cause us to leave thinking, wow, that preacher is fantastic. But that preacher is a failure if you leave thinking the preacher is good. You know how to judge me if you leave thinking God is good? Wow, he preached about a great God. That's success. Now I say all of this because the author of this book, the Apostle Paul, says this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. How many times have we kind of ignored this? I've seen this too many times. Just a blatant disregard for what this passage says. Now, I realize that what I'm saying is self-serving, or it seems like it. I'm a, I'm a pastor who's talking about the importance of having a pastor. And the qualifications of being a pastor. But even if I weren't, even if I weren't a pastor, even if I were sitting in the congregation as a lay person, just a member of a church... I would be saying the same thing. Why? Because a shepherd, pastor, elder, whatever word you use, must give an account to God. See, in Romans 14, every Christian is told that we will have to give an account to God for our own souls. One day you will stand before God, and, and, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but the way that I envision it, why should I allow you into my presence? We all have to answer for that. But you know what happens with the author of Hebrews? He says, you know what, you, or, or she, you have to answer to this. You have to answer for your own account. But those who are shepherds, those who are pastors, not only have to do this, they have to answer for every single soul that's under their care. This is a, a noble task. See, the term pastor comes from the term shepherd, or it's the same idea. It the, the means the same thing. Um, some of you have animals. Some of you have lots of animals. Some of you live on what I would call a farm. Now, just to be fair, I'm more comfortable eating animals than I am being around them. But I've seen shepherds on TV, and I've seen pictures of shepherds. 
But the idea of being a shepherd never really resonated with me until I started examining what the Bible says. There's a lot of talk about shepherds. The Bible says that leaders in the church are shepherds. Ephesians 4 says that shepherds are a gift to the church. 1 Peter 5 commands leaders to shepherd the flock. And we know that Jesus has talked many times about being the chief shepherd. There's a reason why Paul uses this terminology. Shepherds lead. Shepherds protect. Shepherds keep a, a watch over their flock. Shepherds know their sheep by name. Do you know what Paul doesn't say a shepherd is? A manager. Paul nowhere says that a shepherd manages. What this means is that pastors are in the trenches with their people just as a shepherd is with their sheep. Conflict comes, the shepherds run to it. Marriages are in trouble and breaking apart, the shepherds run right to it. False doctrine, fighting amongst members, shepherds are in the middle, protecting the church and working for peace. See, a shepherd can't be a shepherd without being part of the sheep, being with the sheep. And so I will say this first and foremost, before I'm a pastor, I am a member of this church. Above and beyond being a pastor, I am a member just like you. And you say, well, then now you need to spend all your time with the sheep. No, here's the thing. A shepherd, in, a, in terms of a church sense, does not spend all the time with the sheep because the shepherd has been called to study, to read, to prepare, to think, to be ready to defend the church hours each week in preparation. And not just in sermon prep either. A shepherd reads widely. A shepherd studies. A shepherd knows the culture. A shepherd asks questions and, and reads broadly so that when we stand before you to preach and to teach, that we can accurately apply God's word to your life. Paul says doing all these things is a noble task. This is what God requires of a shepherd. This goes contrary to many popular thoughts. Having a large church is not the standard for a successful shepherd. Having a, 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 a big church is not what God demands or requires or even expects, but that is the temptation. Why? Because we've bought into the world's idea of success. Bigger is better. Influence is important. Success is results and action. But hear me. None of that is found in Scripture. If your idea of a successful church is a big one or even one that is growing exponentially, you're missing the mark. Because I can name successful pastors, guys who are week in and week out laboring over the text, loving the church, preaching the word, and their churches decline. There are stories after stories of some of the greatest preachers in history who have been pushed out of their church. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the, the greatest American preacher that we've ever experienced, was fired from his church 
simply because he said only Christians should be taking part in communion. See, his church declined, and his church pushed him out. By all worldly accounts, he was a failure at what he did. He ended up going out west and, and, mission, and became a missionary to the Native Americans at the time. But he was a faithful preacher of the word. See, I, I know many churches who have declined yet are still faithful in their teaching and leadership. And there are reasons for that. Sometimes it's God's pruning. Other times that can come from a season where God just wants us to learn something about him and our reliance upon him. But we've been ingrained to look at the results and render judgment on those who aren't growing and think, wow, there's something wrong with them. You say, well, that, that's a problem for me. Well, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that there was a conflict in the church amongst teachers, that, that they were saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. And do you know what Paul says? Paul says, all of us were waterers. We may have planted seeds, we may have watered, but that is meaningless because none of that causes it to grow. Do you know what Paul says? Paul says, God brings the growth. Not us. Not the man behind the pulpit. Not the man leading music. Not, not, not anybody sitting in the pews. It is God who brings the growth. Our responsibility is not in programs and flashy worship or brilliance in the pulpit. It is to be faithful to what God says. And all of this is one of the reasons why I discourage young men from ministry. You say, wait, why? Why are you discouraged? It's a noble task. Paul says that ministry, going after the teaching of the word, is a noble task. And following after the long line of men who have come before me, I tell them to run from it. Go as far and as fast as you can away from the calling of ministry. Why? Because it's a difficult calling. Full of disappointments and discouragement, especially when we're measured either by ourselves or by others against those who are seen to be more successful. We are always, always measuring ourselves to someone or something else. I do it, you do it, we all do it. And this may not make much sense to you if you've never been in pastoral ministry, or you've never worked with someone who has or been close to someone. And so you may think, well, every job has its stressors. You're right, I don't know what it is to be a cop. I don't know what it's like to serve in the military or to be a, a nurse in an ER. So why am I emphasizing how difficult ministry can be? Well, plainly put, in most jobs, there is some sort of compartmentalization. Whatever job there is, most jobs have work and family are separate. And then you have, with your family side, you have your friends and your church, your extracurricular activities, but they don't always intersect and certainly not greatly and from a pastoral perspective there is no separation there is no compartmentalization in the life of a pastor everything is just stacked on top of one another my church is where I work 
My church is where my friends are. My church is where my family worships. And so there's this this weight that a pastor, an elder, a shepherd carries that for many it is unbearable. Because there is no division, a pastor carries every single day this with him. This is why every time there's conflict in the church, it's just not just a job situation. The way that elders and shepherds and leaders view conflict in a church or disagreement or disunity or when people leave is not just people left. It is family. It is family. It, 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 is, it is as if your own blood and, and, and your blood and flesh have a, just fighting in disagreement, right? This is how we feel. Each and every, and you have felt this as well. Every single Christian has felt this, this pull. You know those Thanksgivings that get really tense because people are screaming at each other? Maybe it's just my family that's done that. Maybe you haven't. But, but we, we've seen it on TV at least, right? It's uncomfortable. It's painful. We don't sleep well. We are stressed out. And a shepherd who truly loves his church is pained, is burdened over the church. When the pressure builds for the pastor to do something, listen, that only God can do, there will be a breaking point. Many pastors have, have simply just given into human wisdom and said, well, well, here's eight programs that we can do. We, here's what we can poll our community and see what they want and then we'll do whatever they want. That's not faithful leadership according to what I see in Scripture. That's closer to giving people what they want when their ears need to be itched. Anybody who stands behind the pulpit, anybody who teaches God's word must be able to say, this is what God says. Because of all the pressures that that church leadership faces, this is the only vocation, the only calling that I can think of that has all of these difficulties kind of just stacked one on top of the other. Paul says it's a noble one, but it's a difficult one. So then what do I say if someone says, I still want to pursue this? I still want to go after ministry. I know it's going to be difficult. I know the hardships. I know all of that, but I still want to run after it. Where do I go? I go to 1 Timothy 3. Paul gives the church a list of qualifications for the office. Beginning in verse 2, these are uh, are the marks of one's life. As someone who often sees things in black and white, there is a danger here. Because it's very easy to say, nobody's meeting these standards. And that's the truth. These standards that are given... There is not one single human being aside from Jesus who can say, yeah, I've met these. And so what do we do? There's a danger of that because we can all of a sudden eliminate every single person from from being in leadership. But we know that God says that there must be shepherds. Next week we'll see deacons. We, We know that there are these offices inside the church. So what do we do then? 
are these defining characteristics of a man? Does, is the person who we're considering to be an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer, is this how they're defined? Pastors can't be perfect, we know that. And we can't meet these requirements all the time. Am I always hospitable? No. Am I always respectable or self-controlled? Of course not. But is that what people think when they think about me? Let's go through these. First, that we see the first qualification listed is that the elder or pastor must be above reproach. This means he must be blameless. This means he must not be defined by sin. He's upright and honorable. I want to give you this quote. Richard Baxter was a 17th century British pastor. Um, and he gives a warning to all of those in ministry that they must pay attention to their lives because it's so much easier for someone in the pulpit to say, you need to do something without examining our own hearts. It's so much easier to tell someone else what to do, isn't it? We all do that. And when you have a platform, it grows and grows and grows exponentially. Listen to what Richard Baxter says. Take heed to yourselves, lest you example let your, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Take heed to yourself, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, and lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God as when you have done, dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not... Why do, you not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? Do you know the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death and yet you will do them? You that teaches another, teaches thou not of yourself? You say that a man should not commit adultery or be drunk or covetous, or are you such yourself? You that make your boast of the law, though breaking the law dishonors your God? What? Shall the same tongue speak evil that speaks against evil? Shall those lips censor and slander and backbite your neighbor that cry down these things and like the things in others? Take heed of yourselves, lest you cry down sin, and yet do not overcome it. Lest, while you bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slave yourselves. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. To whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Oh, brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. This is what every preacher, every pastor, every leader 
every shepherd faces. We spend six days staring at ourselves in a mirror and seeing the ugliness so that we can stand before you and hope that you do the same and look at yourself for what we really are and in what we need to clean ourselves from that ugliness. That we examine our own hearts, we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day through the word so that when we stand before you, we're not chiding you, we're trying to encourage and exhort you to love Jesus and cling to the cross as hard as you can. The next qualification listed is that a leader must be a husband of one wife. This is not so much talking about divorce as it is faithfulness because we know that a married man can have affairs and can come back and still say, well, I'm married to the same wife. The purpose of Paul's statement is that the pastor must be completely devoted to his wife. He must be a one-woman man. You, you remember in, in, the, in the church in Ephesus, the, the issue was sexual sin. They were a young church full of problems. People brought their baggage into the church. They, they brought all of those previous ideas of what a church should be. And Paul was helping Timothy to remember that if he wants people to change their behavior to be more Christ-like, he must have a theological foundation to build upon. This was a reminder, though, of Proverbs, which says the shame of adultery doesn't get wiped away, and we celebrate, though, the truth that in God's eyes, in God's sight, all of our sin, past, present, future, have been wiped away clean if we are found in Christ. But there's still history. It's never forgotten by the people. And if we value marriage, and we should, then we need to see that marriage is a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. He's always a faithful groom. And the pastor needs to exemplify this. Well, the next few qualifications go together. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Further in this passage, it says that the pastor must not be a drunk, not violent, not quarrelsome. He must be controlled and decent. He must not allow anger or alcohol or a short temper to control him or to define who he is. Now, Set aside the fact that this is clear in Scripture for just a second. There's not a person who wants to be led by someone who stands against what Scripture says. I've never met a person, Christian or not, that says, I want to follow after this raging, angry alcoholic. Not a person in the world would say that. Yeah, man, I love my boss. He flies off the, the handle every single day, and he's screaming expletives at us. I love that guy. I want to be around him. No. God's standard makes perfect common sense. We don't want to follow someone who doesn't have control. We want leaders in the church to be controlled by the Spirit of God, not their flesh. We want leaders to be consumed by the things that glorify God, not our flesh. Well, what we see next is that the pastor must also be hospitable, which goes hand in hand with not being a lover of money. You can ask yourself, are, are, are the church elders hospitable? I, I would argue absolutely. Are we lovers of money? I'd say absolutely not. 
Do, would the elders, think about this, of the elders here in the church, if you were in a position where you didn't have a place to stay, would you have multiple options in terms of the elders? And I hope to say you would believe absolutely yes. Do the elders set aside their comfort in order to be a blessing to you? A church that doesn't have faithful leaders who are hospitable will never be hospitable themselves. These words from Paul are an encouragement for the leaders in the church to model behavior that they want to see in the congregation. Paul says that a pastor must also not be a lover of money. I don't really like talking about money from the pulpit. It always seems a little self-serving. I get it. Jesus talks a lot about it. The Bible talks a lot about it. It's uncomfortable at times, but more than just a dollar value, this is a heart issue. Do the shepherds of a church value the bottom line, their, their bank account, more than they value the souls of people? This is a question that every church needs to ask. Things go deeper than just a number. It goes to what drives someone to serve. As much as I tell people to run for ministry because it's going to be difficult, run for ministry if you think you're going to be rich. Very few are, and the ones that are generally aren't ones that I would ever recommend. Someone who gets into ministry, someone who serves as an elder or a leader in the church for power, prestige, or payment is setting themselves and the church up for complete disaster. Another qualification listed here is that he must manage his own house well. Verses 4 and 5 say this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I don't know of other jobs that do this, but I don't know, and you may not know this, but when a church looks to hire a pastor, they interview the pastor, the prospective candidate, but you know they also interview the wife. It's a really strange thing if you've never been involved in this. I've never had another job where, that my wife was brought in for an interview. Maybe even illegal, I'm not sure. Do you know why churches do that? It, some churches, to be fair, will do it so they can get a second staff member for free. There are churches who do that. But the real reason that churches will want to meet the candidate's wife is to make sure that that candidate is managing his household well. If they start asking questions of the wife about their children and she starts unloading on her husband, it's, he's in trouble. This is important. This is odd for any career, but this is absolutely essential for someone who serves in ministry. My home life is a wreck. How in the world can I offer you any kind of counsel? If, if, if I'm consumed by problems in my home, how am I going to be able to sit and, and study and ponder the text? I can't. To neglect my own family is not only unwise, it's a terrible mark on the church. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a danger in pastoral ministry for someone to be preaching the word to you and by their actions they're proving themselves to not even be a believer. Now up to this point, you may be thinking, well, these are all good things for everyone to follow. 
Like, no, everyone should be the husband of one spouse, right? That's really good advice. Or the wife of one spouse. That's really positive advice. Don't be a lover of money. Wonderful advice. Be consumed by the gospel. Wonderful advice. You say, well, but how does that apply to the pastor? Well, here's the next two points that Paul gives that are specifically applicable to the pastor. And, and, and he says, well, that, that Christians uh, or the pastor um, should be not a recent convert and that he is able to teach. Those are two specific requirements for pastoral ministry, elders, pastor, shepherd. Why? A recent convert could easily fall into bad doctrine. We've seen it. A recent convert could become puffed up, especially those who have gifts, those who are smart, get tossed into a position of leadership that they are ill-equipped to deal with. So the next question, how long do we wait? I have absolutely no idea. No earthly idea how long we sh- a church should wait. This is why a church needs elders. In the council of many, there's wisdom. And so in a church that has a plurality of elders, they can examine, they can watch, they can see the candidates, the person, his teaching, and they make the ultimate decision on how soon is too soon. I don't know how long a church should wait, as long as it takes, I suppose. And I know that tells you nothing, and that probably makes you maybe even more confused than you were before. Uh, But God has given elders to the church to lead in these situations. And a church that has healthy eldership will make these situations, make these decisions well. The next thing Paul says is an overseer must be able to teach. What makes a good teacher? If you go and look at the top-selling Christian books today, without even looking at the list, my guess is that the majority of those would not be good books. That the most popular Christian preachers today would probably not be ones that I would recommend for you to listen to. Yet they're followed by millions. People watch them on TV, listen to their podcast, watch them online, soak in every word, and yet I would say that many of those are teaching not the gospel, and when they do hint on the gospel, it's a distortion of the gospel away from our sinfulness and instead onto humanity's positive traits or how to live a better life or how to have a better marriage rather than look to Jesus and cling to him An overseer must be able to teach. So then is it down to whether we like someone or not? Is that the the standard? And it's tempting, isn't it? A gifted communicator who is able to give you wisdom that, I never saw that in the passage before. Again, this is a guilt that we all carry. We import worldly wisdom into what the text says, what Scripture says. Because here's the deal. We can poll all of us and say, what is a good teacher? And we'd all have different responses. Or who is a good teacher? So then what do we do then? What defines a good teacher? Well, Scripture says he must be, uh, I must have the gift of teaching given by God and approved by the church. He, he must know doctrine and explain it well. A teacher with influence can lead an entire congregation astray. So he must be able to teach well and teach what is right. 
He must be a student of Scripture. He cannot stop learning. He must spend much of his time by himself in quiet, preparing, reading, pouring over Scripture and praying. He must be capable to discern what is right from almost right and what issues are worth fighting for. He must be able to to give that theological triage the first, second, and third level issues. He must be able to figure out where those issues lie. He must hold firm to the truth that he received through God's word and never waver when pressure builds. He must be willing to abandon, have people abandon him when he proclaims the truth. And he must be willing to be attacked when he calls out false teachers and false doctrine. This is a noble task. And here's where I want to push a little bit. Think of the times that churches have looked for new pastors. Maybe you were on a search committee. You certainly read through this, I guarantee it. But think of the times that you had to consider what we're looking for or what a church is looking for or any church is looking for in a pastor. Do you notice that most of what we hear from people is not found in the Bible? It's not found here. If you, I, I encourage you, go home, start looking at big churches, small churches, and everything in between, what they look for in a pastor. And you'll see a couple common traits. Compelling communicator. Dynamic leader. Nowhere will you find that in Scripture. Able to draw a crowd. Attractive to everyone outside of the church. You're not going to find that in Scripture. What we see in the Bible is simple. It's simple to see, not so simple to put forward. The standard is faithfulness. That is the standard. You want to judge a pastor's success, whether it's me or an elder or anyone else and any church, judge them by their faithfulness to the word and faithfulness to the church. If you can answer, he's faithful, and he's faithful, he is successful. See, the standard is not what we think or what we want. The standard is scripture. And I've been guilty of adding and subtracting from it. What the Bible tells us is that if we want a pastor or an elder who is a success, we read what the Bible says a success is, and anything else, we toss it aside. And so here's the rubber meeting the road. In all of this, we have to remember that none of us, not me, not you, not any pastor, not any pastor present, future, none of us meet the standard perfectly that God has laid out for us here. There's not one except Jesus. These qualifications, though, should be exhibited, minus those two, in all of our lives, though. We should be defined uh, by these in a positive aspect. This should be a characteristic of a mature believer. And so what this means is that a church can't hold a pastor or elder or church leader to a standard that 
we aren't willing to follow ourselves. Any of you who know me well enough know that I am no more holy than any of you. I am not any more special than any of you. I'm learning day by day what it means to follow after Christ, and I'm stumbling every step of the way. I can't do it. Neither can you. None of us can. One of the criticisms of Christianity is it's a crutch, and I say, no, a crutch doesn't go far enough. Christianity holds me up. I can't walk. I can't move. And my faith lifts me up and holds me up because I don't meet these standards. I can't. I can try and try and try, and I can't do it. And neither can you, but Jesus does for us. Uh, I'm temporary here. If the Lord tarries, I'll be here, and then someone else will come, and someone else will come after that, and then on and on and on. And we are temporary placeholders. We are under shepherds. We are here to serve for a season, die, and then be forgotten. But along the way, we are here to bring God as much glory as we possibly can and point people to the cross. But I am temporary. I'm an under-shepherd to the ultimate shepherd. And it's Jesus who we look to, not the man behind the pulpit. My duty is to follow Christ, proclaim him with all that I have in me through the brokenness and through the sin that I carry, because no longer does it weigh me down, because the gospel reminds me that I don't need to strive to be perfect because I can't be perfect enough. And I'm commanded as a pastor to give everything that I am and everything that I have to the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, took God's wrath, and meets the requirement of a faithful pastor. I am to be but a taste, hopefully a taste, of what a faithful pastor is. And to preach and proclaim the ultimate shepherd, the chief shepherd, and that's only Christ. Would you pray with me?